Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. I'll read that and uh, pray for us. We'll start digging into it. Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syncyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. You can pray with me. Father, we thank you once again for your word and how it's living and active. We thank you that you're a God who's not silent, but you have spoken to us uh, all that we need to hear from you and your word. And so we pray your spirit might, might use these, these words that you have spoken that have come from the pen of Paul uh, to convict our hearts, to help us understand more of who you are and especially who you are towards us in Jesus. We pray that uh, there might just be an overflowing of the spirit here uh, this evening in your word uh, and that it, it would cause uh, much fruit to be born in our lives and and we really would be changed by being connected to jesus and we pray all this in jesus name amen well uh in season nine of the office arguably the worst season of the office if you want to argue that with me it's the last one it's the worst one they needed to end it there uh in my opinion there's a halloween episode uh, in that season. Uh, and at one point in the episode, Dwight comes across this pill on the ground. He just randomly finds it. Uh, and he like goes up online and tries to figure out like what this pill is. And he finds out it's an anti-anxiety pill. And then he's on like this witch hunt to find out who is the madman in the office that is taking anti-anxiety medication. Like at one point he's like, this is a pill that combats insanity. So whoever is taking it, is not only insane, but they're off their meds. And the pill actually belongs to this other character, Nellie, uh, and she decides to play along with Dwight's inquisition for a little while. Um, and, and so she goes around with him, and at one point they're, they're in the break room, and they've left the pill out on this like 
little plate to see if like anyone will come by and take it. And she's finally like, okay, Dwight, this is ridiculous. Let's call this off. Like, it's just an anxiety pill. People have anxiety. And Dwight responds, you think I don't have anxiety? I have anxiety all the time. Every waking moment of my life is sheer torture. I have land disputes to settle, idiot cousins to protect, ne'er-do-well siblings to take care of. I don't need some stupid pill to get me through all this. And he actually does end up taking the pill later. Nellie actually says, maybe you should consider it. But why is that funny? Why, why is that such an iconic office scene? It's because Dwight, he's acting like anxiety is some rare defect, like there's like a werewolf in the office. But in fact, anxiety is so universal. Even Dwight, that confident, like, let's get things done character that he is, like, he's just openly admitting that he's totally overwhelmed with the instability of life, the chaos of what's going on around him. And I think especially uh, if you've been on planet Earth for the past couple years, uh, I, I can guess you've seen this more and more. The universality of anxiety is just, it, it's become so evident. Actually, there was an article I came across that in 2018, Barnes & Noble noted that sales on books on anxiety like, went up, surged by like 25%. The world around us is just constantly changing, feels unstable. We've seen, we've seen some of that in the political world lately. Uh, COVID introduced this whole new category of instability that we had never encountered before. And even just the way we increasingly live our lives, that we move away to different places. We go away from our families and the places that we've grown up. There's, a, there's this rootlessness that is deep-seated in us that makes us just not feel stable and in, causes anxiety. Well, even back in ancient Rome, the Philippians face in, instability. Uh, I, that already has showed up, actually, back in chapter 1, in verse 27. Uh, Paul calls the Philippians to stand firm, uh, striving side by side, side by side for the faith of the gospel and not being frightened by any opponents they might face. And so that, that's kind of assuming there, there's something that's shaking them. There's some instability in their life. And I think we could, if we just remember what's going on with them, that's really evident. Their pastoral mentor, the guy who first told them about Jesus, is in jail. And they're experiencing this opposition from the culture around them. A couple weeks ago, we talked about they're experiencing this opposition, false teaching, even from within the church. And then here in chapter four, we've learned there's even an instability among the solid Christian group that they have. These two key women in the church, Yudia and Syntyche, I hope I'm pronouncing their names right. They're in this conflict about something. And we don't, we don't really know what it is exactly. Uh, but I think that vagueness might be deliberate. It might be so that we can see this is one particular instance of this reoccurring problem in the church, in the Christian life. They're, they're two fellow Christians. Their names are written in the book of life. But they're at odds with each other. It's 
So there's some instability even there. And into this situation, Paul writes, my joy and my crown stand firm in the Lord. When Paul makes this call, he's really saying, there's a peace that's in Jesus that I'd like to invite you into. You can actually find stability. And so he's reminding us that connection to Christ gives us this new peace that enables us to stand firm in the midst of a really unstable world. Uh, and we see that peace found in, in three ways in this passage that comes out. We see one, finding peace in community. Two, finding peace in prayer. And lastly, finding peace in our thinking. So first, let's think about finding peace in community. Look back at verses 2 through 3. And think about, think about the fact that this letter is being, like, it's going to be read aloud to a, a whole group of people, to this whole Philippian church. How would you feel about being called out by name by your pastor in a letter that he wrote to the church? What if uh, you guys knew there was like this big beef going on between Dory and Hunt? There's no actual beef going on. I totally made that up. I just, it's just a scenario. Don't read into that at all. (laughs) Just you guys all know who they are. What if that was going on? And, you know, I came up here and I was like, hey, Dorian Hunt, like, you you guys, there you are. (laughs) You're below my eye line. Like, you guys, you guys need to reconcile. Like, you need to agree in the Lord. And actually, like, Hey, you that are really close to Dorian Hunt, you need to help out with this. And everybody really, like, we, we need to work together to resolve this issue. Like, like how, how would you guys respond to that? Like, you probably think, I, I think as the kids say it, I was putting them on blast. Is that, <laughs> is that right? Did I use that right? <laughs> that, that kind of bluntness, I think, is it's just so alien to southern christian culture we would never do something like that so why does paul do this uh to euodia and syntyche it's because peace the stability they're looking for is found in community if you're trying if you're feeling your like life is chaos and you're trying to find some stability and you're just doing that by yourself in your room off on your own like stupid it's, it's not gonna work there's actually several calls that, to stand firm that are show up several times in scripture and every single one of them is plural and i think maybe the the bluntness that paul has here and why it seems so foreign is is a sign of maybe some weakness and superficiality in, in the christian community that we have that we couldn't just gently call someone out like that is it not so often the case that, that many of the, the anxieties that are going on in our life are actually tied to unresolved issues that, that are going on in communities that we've had, that are maybe going on in our own families, and yet we're afraid to actually engage with that. We're afraid to do the messy work of relationships. We're, so we just go, we just kind of sit on our own and we brood about it. Maybe we talk to like one other person about it. And just sit in the anxiety. Paul here, and like all the commands he's giving in verse 3, 
Uh, they're all together commands. They all have this Greek prefix that means do this together. Uh, the word where he's telling them to, to help these women, I, I thought it was interesting. Like one of the only places that this shows up is uh, when Peter and Luke is actually, uh, there's, there's that scene where Jesus like makes all these fish appear so much that like he can't pull them in on the net. And he's like, help, help me pull in all these fish. And, that, and that's kind of the image I got of what Paul's doing here. He's like, there's this situation going on. Like everybody jump in and help. Don't, don't sit back and, like, watch this fight play out or, like, gossip about it. Like, enter into it. It kind of, this made me think of another sitcom uh, that was also created by Mike Schur, if you know who that is. It's the guy who created The Office. Uh, season 7 of Parks and Rec. Um, I haven't referenced Parks and Rec yet, which is surprising because I love it almost as much as The Office. Uh, so, at the beginning of that season, Leslie and Ron, two of the main characters... They're in this bitter feud, and it goes on from the very beginning of the season all the way into the, to the end of this one episode where it, they just, it has gotten just unbearable, and all uh, the rest of the Parks and Rec crew, they're like, we have to do something about this. This has just gone way too far, and so they end up tricking Leslie and Ron uh, to go and meet, to sign, do some paperwork that they have to do in their old Parks and Rec office. And, like, as they go in there, like, they quickly shut the door, lock it, leave them there overnight and say, you guys, like, you have to resolve this. You're not leaving this office until you've made peace. And and Ron and Leslie, like, immediately, like, no, like, in unison. They're just so angry about it. And they resist, like, any kind of reconciliation, if you watch that episode, for hours and hours. And then late into the night, they finally get talking start making some progress. And the next morning when the Parks and Rec gang shows up, they find Leslie and Ron dancing around on the table in yoga clothes, singing We Didn't Start the Fire, and, like, Ron is playing along in his saxophone. And, like, it is just so obvious the feud is completely over. Why is that such a beautiful moment in that show? It's because the community worked together resolve this rift between these close friends and Paul Paul's calling us to be doing the exact same thing to be real and to be peacemakers in the Christian community that we're a part of and we're not only to to be reactive and and, you know try to solve an ongoing conflict but our daily posture should be preventing that and that's what Paul I think is really getting at in verse 5 he says let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That, that word really, it reflects a, a gentleness and a frame of mind that is just really not that concerned with my own personal rights. If you're feeling super unstable, if you're, if you're feeling super anxious, like consider how you're viewing it and treating others in the community that you find yourself in. Like, do you, are you viewing them as they're there to serve you, you're trying to get as much out of them as you can? Or are you even in community at all? Or have you been spending a, a lot of time like in your dorm by yourself so you don't even have to mess with this at all? Like, No wonder if that's the case that life might feel unstable for you. 
You have no one to lean on, and all that matters is your own well-being. Like, anxiety quickly takes over when that's your day-to-day life. But that being said, uh, many of us experience conflict in community, partly because of what's going on us internally, that we bring to the table. We're not reasonable because our own minds are going haywire. They're going crazy. Our hearts are all over the place. There's not just this conflict outwardly. There's this conflict already internally. And so I think that's really the connection here when Paul's transitioning from this uh, encouragement to the community to this call to not be anxious in anything and to pray. So often the root of so much conflict is our own personal anxieties, is our own Fear of being sidelined and overlooked, feeling like we're going to miss out on something, feeling like we're going to be forsaken and left behind. And, and some of us want to, you know, jump on that, try to take action and impose our will and make things happen. But other of us, that just overcomes us and paralyzes us. And so Paul gives us another way to find peace in verse six, prayer. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. That's our second point, finding peace in prayer. It's a frustratingly simple solution. I I think many of you hear that, and you might just kind of glaze over. You're like, yeah, okay, sure, Paul. Like, I'll stop being anxious and just pray. Like, why, why didn't I think of that before, Paul? I think it's really easy to be cynical about what Paul's saying here when, you, when you've heard it a million times. But Paul is really reminding us of something super profound, that anxiety and prayer are actually two sides of the same coin. If you know how to be anxious, you already know a bit about what it looks like to have a life filled with prayer. In Psalm 1, David writes uh, that the the happy, that we could say non-anxious person delights in the law of the Lord and he meditates on it day and night. And that that word there, it it means to meditate, to ruminate on something, to look at it over and over again. It almost has the sense of like muttering it under your breath as you're walking around. Isn't that what anxiety like feels like all the time? What if this happens? What if this? It's like you can't turn your mind off. You keep mulling over this situation. What, what about that decision I made? Was that the right decision? What about that, that thing that person said to me? Like, what, what, if, what if that goes wrong and, and I lose this thing? Does that sound familiar? Like, our hearts are so wired to just ruminate on stuff. And this call to prayer is a call to reorient that pattern of, re, of ruminating to God. We're to ruminate instead of all the things that are going around us, all the circumstances and situations of people that are scaring us and frustrating us. We're ruminating on who the Lord is and what he's promised and what he's done for us and what we find in his word. Paul is not just saying, just, just stop being anxious, like just stop it. He's saying, look what's going on here. This, this is actually an opportunity and a door to a deeper relationship with God. 
And if we do this, if our, if our hearts stop scrolling through social media and, and begin scrolling through God's character and his attributes and especially what he's done in Christ, we begin to remember how powerful and how loving he is. We begin to remember that he works things all together for good for those who love him. We begin to see maybe I can actually place the burden of the future on him. We, we start to do what Peter calls us to do in 1 Peter 5. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt to you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Prayer is this way for us just like load up all those anxieties like in a trash bag and just like throw them in the back of God's truck and just say, it's your problem. You dispose of this. You deal with this. Like, I can't do it. I can't justify my own existence. These kind of things are beyond my pay grade. So often I think we forget like in the scheme of things in God's kingdom, like we're this lower level employee. We, we often think we're the CEO. We think the burden of the whole thing is on us. And, and maybe in there, there's a little bit of a necessary rebuke to see some of the pride in our heart that's connected to a lot of our worry. And Paul Miller, in his really great book, A Praying Life, the, the quotes there in your bulletin, he says, if you're not praying, you're quietly confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. Anxiety and, and, and the, the prayerlessness that often goes with that, I, I think is, I know in my life, can often be a subtle form of pride. I don't want to admit I'm actually not in control. I actually can't engineer the perfect outcomes for my life. I have to place this in God's hands. Well, as we uh, start to wrap up, um, Go ahead and look uh, at verses 8 and 9, um, our last point here, finding peace in our thinking. Let's consider again what Paul's saying there. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What is Paul saying here with all this? I think he's saying what we think about and how we think really matters in relation to peace in our life. I hope you've already seen that a little bit, even on the point of prayer and directing our thoughts to God. But it, Paul just really wants to drive that point home further here. And I think the reality is, especially lately, many of us have been learning very bad mental habits. If you want to read a great book that dives into this, uh, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. It's by an NYU sociologist, Jonathan Haidt, uh, and another guy, Greg Lukanoff. Uh, and basically, the big, the big point of the first third of that book is that there are these false beliefs, these, these sort of half-truths that have been 
honestly passed on to you guys, passed on to young people uh, that really might actually be some of the causes for the increases in depression and anxiety and suicide that they're seeing. Um, and in particular, they talk a lot at the beginning about just this idea that uh, it, we're all really fragile, that like we should just be very careful. We should try to protect each other from like any saying anything hard, like that would be perceived the wrong way or could be hurtful or, you know, you know, it's kind of what we feel like now, walking on tiptoes, like not wanting to be canceled about something. But it, in reality, they argue, you guys are all anti-fragile. I'm anti-fragile. We actually grow and become stronger when we face adversity. And, and there's a lot of solid reasons um, that make that case that I have no time to get into. And if you want to talk more about that, uh, I'd love to get together and talk. But I, I mentioned their work as an, an example of the fact that how we think and what we think radically shapes how we face the instability of life. And if that's true now, if it, if it was, well, sorry, if it was true for the Philippians in a pre-internet, pre-social media area, era, like how much more is that true when we are just like totally flooded all the time with all this information and all these narratives and all these ideas? So the question is, what are you thinking about? How are you thinking about life? Where are you getting that data that you're coming to these conclusions about life and how it works? Is it from God and his word? Is it from good, common grace perspectives that might even be written by non-Christians that are actually in touch with reality? Or is it whatever is just popping up as the latest thing on social media or is it from what certain things your friends are doing and saying and and are communicating to you about how life works I, i think one of the things that's so helpful about counseling with dealing with anxiety and depression and other things is that good counselors cause us to examine our thinking in really helpful critical ways that's why, in particular, I'm a big fan of the cognitive behavioral therapy uh, sort of camp. And, and cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, it, it's really the goal is just to dig in, to ask, to get out there. What, what am I actually believing? What are my ideas? What is my thinking? And is it true? Does this actually align with reality? Because often what we have in our minds all throughout the week is not true is not commendable, is not lovely, is not excellent, is not in touch with reality, with God himself, the the source of all things good and true and beautiful. And the writers of scripture do this. Again, go, go home if you want to see some examples of this, Psalm 27 and Psalm 42, great examples. Uh, But I, I want to give just one, one little practical just exercise of this. you find yourself in this moment, you know, you do really bad on an exam. Maybe ask yourself, is it true if you find yourself going down this bad road? Is it true that if I do bad on this exam, it means I'll fail this class, which means I won't have the GPA to get the grad school or the next career step I want, which means my life will go off track, which means then I'll be ha- unhappy forever. 
Is it actually true that I'm worthless because I'm not as good looking or successful or athletic as this other person? Is it true that I'm not valuable because this person isn't interested in me romantically? Will my social life really be over if I don't join this particular group or hang out with these particular people? And the more that we're immersed in God's word, that's what Paul's really talking about when he's saying the things you've received and you've learned from me, and good, common grace, wisdom, the more it will just become intuitive and natural to critique those bad mental habits, that bad thinking that is causing so much anxiety in our life. And what will drive that home even more is if we take that thinking and then we begin to actually practice it. You notice that here at the end. Paul's not like, just don't, he's not like, just think about this. He's like, do this, implement it. I mean, it seems kind of overly simplistic, but if you want peace in your life, uh, you know, there's that famous hymn, trust, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus. You're like, that's kind of cheesy. But, but it's true. If Jesus' words are actually in touch with reality, like wouldn't putting them into practice actually for the long run make us more stable? If we actually lived as if God was in control and he loved us and, and we saw the fruit of that in our lives, like wouldn't that make us want to just trust him all the more? Uh, well, to really wrap up, um, I, I hope some of this has been helpful. Uh, again, I'd love to talk about it more. But I want to remind that really the biggest hope that undergirds all of this for anxiety is, is just there in those closing words in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. I really love what Sinclair Ferguson writes about this verse. He says, the apostle is saying, God himself is the God of peace. Peace is the atmosphere of heaven. You are in a world full of trouble and anxiety far from the heavenly city, which you are a citizen. But God sends a garrison of his peace, a guard of his peace to guard you while you are away from the homeland. And and, and who is not the perfect example of that? The, the reminder that that is absolutely true, but Jesus himself, that the son of God, he was with the father and the Holy Spirit in eternity, in complete peace, complete stability. And yet he comes down and dives into our chaotic, unpredictable world. He himself in that, you look at his life, he had to do what he's asking us to do, to draw away into the peace that the Father wants to give through prayer, through his thinking. And yet he, he was so deeply distressed in his human nature. He experienced, tasted what, what we experience. That, you, know, you, you see him in the garden and, and he is so overwhelmed by what's going on that he's sweating drops of blood. And yet he does all this without sin. At every moment even experiencing the realness, you know, it tells us it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be deeply distressed. But even in that, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He's bringing his prayers to the Father with thanksgiving. And because of that, 
In Paul's words from Ephesians 2, Jesus himself became our peace on the cross. He broke down the walls that are between us in his flesh. He paid the penalty for all the ways we wrong each other and screw things up and spit in God's face. He took it all on himself to reconcile us, to bring us together so that we might find peace and community together in prayer. We might be reshaped to see things as they truly are. Peace is real and it's attainable if you're connected to Jesus by faith through grace. And, and I recognize it's really hard a lot of times to believe that's true. I, I think it, it will be uh, off and on until Jesus returns. But even now, Jesus, by his spirit, he is sending, he is coming to guard our hearts until he will return and usher in an era of complete peace and stability. His new kingdom and the new heavens and new earth is established. Let me close us in prayer. Father, uh, we confess uh, we are often very anxious. We find it very difficult to trust you. We are often very overwhelmed with the situations you put us in. And uh, we don't know what to do, but we thank you that you have come and spoken to us and told us what we can do. And you've not only given us instructions, but you've given us the power through your spirit to do these things. We pray that you, you might work these practices into our hearts, that you might make us in our anxiety turn more and more to prayer. That, that how we even think about life might more and more be shaped by your word. And we might more and more obey you. And as we trust and obey, we would find that we are happy and at peace in you. We pray you would do all these things by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand up. We're going to end with death